I would like to now introduce our next speaker, Mr. John Wilbanks. Thanks, Brad. And I'd like to thank uh, Apple and MIT for the opportunity to be here today. So it's, it's nice to be first, because you get a chance to be sort of high level and set the tone. And I sort of firmly believe that in any presentation, it's good to start out with a couple of points. The first is, what's the point? What's the point of, of why you're going to listen to us talk for the rest of the day? And what I think the point is, is that open access is the natural and proper response of science and education to the advent of the network. Right? It doesn't make sense that textbooks and journal articles are a year, two years, three years old when the network lets us have things that are up to date to the minute. And open, is simply, uh, open access is simply an infrastructure response to the network that makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary and utility perspective. And why this is important, why this sort of day is important, is that there are entrenched interests uh, in science and in education, in publishing, uh, in teaching, in education and science generally, who have a vested interest in their business models persisting whether or not those make sense uh, in terms of the utility of the science and the scholarship that takes place. And those vested interests actually resist the advent of open access in a lot of ways. That's why we have Linux and Wikipedia, but we don't yet have an internet that really works for education and science yet. And so that's the point as far as I'm concerned, and that's why this is important. So I'm, I'm going to sort of give a little bit of high-level perspective because a lot of the other speakers will give the details. And so the reason why we have to have an open access movement is that most of the infrastructure we have comes out of a world in which knowledge was scarce. So we had to print knowledge onto paper and mail it around to people. We had to hire librarians to keep physical copies of the paper. Right? Knowledge was something you had to go get to. It was scarce and it was expensive. And scholarly publishing, which is turning 350 years old this year, we're going to the Royal Society uh, sort of celebration of this, uh, dates back to the publication of this journal, which is the first scholarly journal ever published, 1665, 1666. The Royal Society itself is 350 years old. And almost all of the artifacts of scholarly publishing uh, that we see today come from this very journal. So the idea of uh, an actual volume one, right, so the idea of a volume, of an article title, of an author, of a set of page numbers, of the idea that we essentially take knowledge and we take a Polaroid of it and we publish it and distribute that publication, that that's the way we send around scholarly knowledge. And what you find is it's sort of 350 years of incremental innovation has taken place on this innovation idea of publishing stuff in journals and in volumes. And so you get the modern version of the exact same journal. Right? It's a website, but it's still got volumes, page numbers, authors, IDs, and ranges. And we still provide citations in the same very traditional way, which is that we don't make a hyperlink to it. We actually say what the page numbers were of the journal on the date to that Polaroid, that little moment in time. And the thing about incremental innovation is that it's, it can actually do an enormous amount of work, but it can sometimes blind us. And so to sort of get us out of the, the publishing thing, I spent some time uh, in the computer science department here at MIT, and one of my professors there gave me this example of incremental innovation in ear technology. So if our ears are good for gathering data from the world, well, a bigger ear makes a lot of sense. And so we get ear horns. And you get incremental technology in the improvement of ear horns. And it sort of naturally leads to an endpoint in which 
we have vested interests who sell these to the British military in World War II to listen for German planes coming across the, the English Channel, and they didn't like radar very much because radar utterly disrupted their business model, which was based in an analog world with a digital technology. And you see this pattern again and again and again, which is that incremental innovation is fantastic for taking an existing breakthrough and perfecting and improving it. But it's not very good for actually making a big breakthrough. And this is one of the reasons why disruptive breakthroughs come outside of existing vested interests. If you've got an iPod, you know that Apple was not in the music business until the late 90s. But there's a reason why the music companies couldn't see the opportunity that was sitting in front of them. So the difference is that, that, and the reason we have this sort of ripe opportunity for disruption is that knowledge isn't scarce anymore. Knowledge is actually very much promiscuous. So let's just take life sciences, which is what uh, I spend most of my time in. So how many articles got published on the life sciences in 2009? Well, according to the count that the US government gives you, it's 863,000 plus articles. So let's bring that home. That's 98 and a half articles per hour per year. So it's essentially impossible for any one person to keep up with this because knowledge is so profligate now. It's no longer scarce. You can't read every article in every journal even if you wanted to. So we have to have a world in which the business models support the indexing of those articles by things like Google and a world in which we can have lots of people reading them and marking them up and hyperlinking and commenting on them because that's what lets us deal with knowledge overload on the internet. And it gets worse, right? If we're here to talk about you know, education and science, so this is the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. 15 petabytes a year is what it generates. Um, this is sort of peanuts compared to some of the very large solar arrays that are going to go up into the, into the sky to look at the night sky. You know, but just consumer stuff, Google processes 24 petabytes a day. Right? I mean, there are, they can't build data centers on places where there's not hydroelectric power because of the electricity required to run Google searches all day, every day. And so the question is, we have these business models that are designed for scarcity, right, which is scholarly publishing and textbooks. And do those business models maximize scholarly value or scientific value right, in a world where knowledge is actually overloaded? And what you find is that they definitely are pretty good for, uh, for the cash value. So this little line here in red is the cost of living increase from 1986 to 2004. So it, it's gone up 73% over those years. But the cost of journals has gone up almost six times faster over the same time period. This is as the cost of distributing that knowledge drops because we can actually send this stuff around on the internet. So profits, right, Elsevier's profits for scholarly and technical publishing last year were 30% was their margin. Right, that's better than Microsoft, it's better even than Apple. And that's on content that was created by academics and purchased by academics as a middleman role. So the question is, does that maximize scientific and scholarly value, even if it's good for shareholder value? Now here is an example of a scientific article. I pulled this off of PubMed, which is the major uh, US database for distributing abstracts. This is also an abstract. Uh, and let's think about what's missing from it. So if you haven't heard, if you've heard me talk, it's unfair to raise your hand, but uh, any volunteers for what, what's missing from this? Right. Hyperlinks are what's missing. Google doesn't work in the absence of hyperlinks because Google counts the number of inbound links to a page and assigns profile rankings based on that. So it's impossible to use Google to find the most accurate and valid articles for what you do. 
So this, the, the one I just showed you is actually the number one hit here. And what I was doing was searching for signal transduction genes and pyramidal neurons. And that is sort of science speak for I would like to find genes that might be drug targets for Alzheimer's. Genes that transmit signals across the cell barrier that are in the sort of neurons that are involved in Alzheimer's. Now, because of the way Google works and because of the lack of hyperlinks in the literature, the number two hit are slides that quote me complaining about the query. <laughs> right? There we go. And it's sort of scary. And what I really want is a list of genes. But that would require integration between the data and the literature, and it would require integration that happens after publication. It would require user con contributions, but those users are blocked out by the legal and technical restrictions on the literature, which contribute to the old business model. And so the problem is that when you have an analog business model and your business goes digital, right, the most common response is to just sort of try to protect it. And so I, I go back to the, the vinyl records days, that was when I started listening to music. And so the, the physical layout of the vinyl record contributed to the rise of the iPod, whether you know it or not. So when music went digital, the, the business model of the, of the companies was, was basically focused on the distribution of those CDs into physical stores where you bought the CDs. And so even though the CD was smaller, they packaged them in these paper long boxes. I don't know if you remember the paper long boxes and the CDs. That was so the CDs would fit into the racks at the record stores. So rather than to understand that the advent of digital music plus the internet changed everything, the music companies tried to protect the business model and a little company named Apple ate their lunch as a result. Right? And that is what the open access movement represents. It is a disruption to the business model of companies who sell content in the science and education spaces who depended on knowledge scarcity to keep their businesses alive. And the big ones are going to be able to deal with this a lot better than the little ones. Right? Elsevier and Nature and and the others, they actually get this. They might not be changing because their profits are still high, uh, but they're actually way out ahead of this. They're, they're, they're much more progressive in many ways than the music companies were in understanding the disruption this was going to bring. This is going to be most difficult for scholarly societies who don't have the funding to invest in the R&D. And so one of the ironies and potential dangers is that uh, in the sort of disruption to the business models, we actually concentrate monopoly power uh, in a small set of companies that can provide air cover to those who need to get open access and still make money. Now, the reason why this disruption isn't just a fad, the reason why this is, is, is sort of coming and permanent is that this actually does sustain better business models in a knowledge overload context. So since we're going to spend the day on open access, what does it mean? Open access is defined in lots of different ways. I prefer this one. It's called the Budapest Declaration. And the key bit is that the, the idea is that it's only open access if it's on the web. Right, which means it's digital, and if it's available for users to read, download, copy, distribute, print, search, link to the full text, crawl them for indexing, like Google, or pass them as data to software, which is actually really important for those 900,000 or so Life Sciences articles. But it's, an, it's not a no rights reserve world. The idea is that, that you should get credit or attribution for your work uh, as part of the deal. So it's a trade-off. I make the stuff available on the web, but I get more and more credit as my work gets more and more used. And so when we talk about open access, I like to quote William Gibson. And so he's sort of famous for saying of the future that it's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And that's where we are with open access right now. So this is the US Nas uh, National Institutes of Health policy mandating open access to any life sciences literature funded with taxpayer dollars through the NIH. So if you take NIH money, part of the deal is that within 12 months of publishing an article, it goes onto the internet into a public archive 
free to the world. The Public Library of Science, which was sort of revolutionary and radical uh, when it began uh, eight, nine years ago, uh, now launched PLOS One, which is the third largest journal in the world. Three years after it was launched, cleared $12 million in revenue last year, giving away the content. Right? That's a model that scales with the network instead of one that doesn't scale with the network, because it understands that knowledge overload creates different opportunities. Biomed Central, which is another open access publisher, again, gives away their content, was sold to Springer last year despite having about 15 million a year in revenues, again, despite giving away the content. Right? These business models scale better in the network. And uh, I pulled this screenshot yesterday, so this is the directory of open access journals. They count just over 5,000 journals in the world being open access. That's about 20% of the world's journals. That's actually revolutionarily fast in the sort of stodgy world of scholarly publishing to do this in an eight-year period, to already have 20% of the world there. And it's not just scholarly publications, it's also educational materials. So uh, it doesn't make any sense that a textbook doesn't contain data and information about 9-11 and the Afghan and Iraq wars. But given the textbook purchase cycles and procedures, it's not at all uncommon that your textbooks are eight or nine years old. You think about how insane that is when we can have a Wikipedia news update on the Times Square bombing uh, be incredibly accurate and crowdsourced within a matter of minutes for free, that we have textbooks that we're teaching kids with that are years out of date, that teachers can't fix, and that teachers can't combine, especially when we're paying for them as taxpayers. So this is the California Free Digital Textbook Initiative. It is essentially uh, moving California, which is a fairly important purchasing agent in textbooks, towards digital online textbooks that are free of charge and that have enough rights associated with them for the users that the users can update them and the users can mix them together. And here's an example of one of those books. This is the CK12 Physics Flexbook. It's passed every quality control measure you can possibly think of. It's free and you can change it. Now that makes a lot more sense than buying books that sit moldering in warehouses, getting older and older and more and more out of date. Right? It's just a better return on investment if you're the public investor in this. It's a natural reaction to the network for education and science materials. And the common thread among all of these projects is this thing we call the commons. And so when I talk about the commons, most people's reaction is, oh, you mean the tragedy of the commons in which you know, Fred and I both put goats on the, the, the quad outside the building, and then we have an incentive to add more and more goats because we can make money selling the meat or the milk or the fur. And eventually, all the grass is gone. And that's the tragedy of the commons, is that we overconsume this resource that can be exhausted. And that's the classic argument for fences, is that if we have fences, then Fred will manage his little patch, and I'll manage my little patch, because only I will go bankrupt if the grass goes away. Now, uh, we can talk about the tragedy of the commons in the way that we manage, for example, oil wells in the Gulf, which is a different kind of tragedy of the commons. Uh, but in the reality of the digital world, Fred and I can each have a copy of that CK12 textbook, and neither of us is hurt by that copy. And none of you are prevented from having a copy by us having a copy. These are non-rivalrous resources. We can all have them, and they actually get more valuable by being shared, not less valuable. And so that's what the digital commons is. It's essentially a public footpath across the property rights that make it illegal to share things. Because believe it or not, it's illegal for you to make a copy of this presentation that I'm giving you unless I explicitly grant you the rights because the default systems we have of copyright in the world. 
And those systems weren't set up for you and me, for educators and for scientists, they were set up for entertainment corporations. And it means that the copyright on this presentation lasts 70 years after I die. And if I don't explicitly give you the right to make a copy and email it to your friend or to your mom, it's illegal for you to do that. And so what we do with the digital commons is we provide standardized free legal tools that make it easy for you as an owner of content to mark the work in a way that makes it possible to share it. So PLOS that I showed you and CK12 that I showed you both use a standardized license from the organization I work for which is called Creative Commons. So think of us like network engineers but for the law. So you don't have to use a private standard to get on the internet. You don't have to use a private standard to get onto the web. You can use TCP, IP, and HTML to accomplish those tasks. And what Creative Commons does is provide legal standards that make it easy for owners of works, like this presentation, to tell the world what rights they'd like to give. And our licenses uh, have been out for about eight years now. Now this is what they look like. We, we call them human readable, not just lawyer readable, because it's important that teachers and scientists know what they're getting into, that we don't sort of sell you a bill of goods. This is what we call an attribution license. And so you see at the top, you're free to share, to copy, distribute, and transmit. You're free to remix, which is to adapt the work, uh, under the condition that you have to give attribution to the author. So that's basically a word-for-word -word free implementation of the open access philosophy that I showed you. So if you'd like to go open access, all you have to do is slap this license on it. You don't have to call any lawyers, and you're done. Um, we also developed some licenses for that sort of literature data integration that I talked about. So it's and I could give a, an hour-long talk on data, but I won't. Uh, data is complicated, and so the best thing you can do with data is to get it into the public domain, which is how most of the US government databases in the sciences and education space work. But if you're in the private individual, it's actually a little bit hard to do that. So we created a tool called CC0 that actually puts data and databases into the public domain so you can make these sort of data literature mashups and hybrids. And what we've seen is pretty much explosive growth in the use of the licenses. So the last hard data we have was, was sort of end of year 2008. We're well over 500 million objects now on the web under the licenses, everything from Wikipedia to the White House. So it's rapidly becoming a standardized way to get stuff into the digital commons, although it isn't the only way. But the whole point of the commons is it's not a tragedy. It's a public resource that gets created through a private set of agreements. It's completely voluntary. Right? No one has to use a digital commons. No one has to contribute to a digital commons. Free riders are a feature of the system, not a bug. But the point is that enough people in the world have enough reasons to contribute to it that it's scaling exponentially every year. And funders and governments and institutions like MIT are fast recognizing that this idea of some rights reserved between all rights and no rights is actually the optimal space for science and education. So, I only have a little bit of time and I've had to go fast, so I'm going to just sort of pause and, and, and wrap up. Now, when we think about open and open access, it's fairly common to, to think about closed as the, as the alternative to that. And I was having a conversation with my wife a couple of weeks ago about the opposites of things. And I think it's important to stop and think about what the opposite of open is. Because it's easy to think that the opposite of open is closed. But on the internet, I would actually postulate that the opposite of open is broken. Because if you can't copy it and paste it into your blog, if you can't link to it from Twitter, if I can't do something like stick it into a presentation and put that presentation in iTunes U, right, it's broken. It's not going to be seen. It's not going to be read. It's not going to have an impact. 
And the point of science and education is precisely to be seen, to be read, and to have an impact. And so the point of a day like today is to bring together people across the world and across the country to talk about how it is that they're getting things open because what they want to do is increase their impact. And on the network, if you're invisible, if you're closed, if you're behind a firewall and nasty digital rights management, your content is broken. And so when, when we talk about open access, it's about making content work. And the rest of the day is going to really fill in all the details. And I'm very grateful again to Apple and to, to MIT for the chance to be a part of this. Thank you very much.